Take your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15. Worked for many years uh, with teenagers, young people. That was just uh, part of what the Lord's calling on my life was. But there are certain occasions and events that uh, stick in my mind as far as about 20 years of doing that. And one of those occasions is the first missions trip that I was partially responsible for. We were taking a trip from Wisconsin to Richmond, Virginia to minister in a church there. And uh, we were uh, going to do this, and we had our schedule packed. I mean, we had planned for what we were going to do, and it was going to be a packed schedule. And one of the very first things as far as that schedule was to drive from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, to Richmond, Virginia overnight and stop along the way. And I remember we had different plans. We had, uh, well, we had planned how to get all the guys in the van. There were 13 of them in a 15-passenger van, myself and my wife. So that was 15 people in one van. The other van uh, was a van that was uh, filled with girls pulling a trailer of all of our stuff. And so we set out, and this is a time back in the 1990s when you didn't have GPS. You had to still read maps. And you didn't have cell phones. Uh, so we were communicating to one another by uh, short-range walkie-talkies. That's how we were communicating, make sure we kept up with one another and the traveling across the country. And the trip, we left about 2.30 in the afternoon and came through Chicago, and that went fine. It was amazing how quickly that went. But we got around Chicago, and the very first thing that went wrong was the fact that we were on 80 uh, and uh, 90, 94, and all of those connections and we missed the turnoff to take 80, 90 across Indiana. And so for about five to 10 minutes, I'm like, I am not familiar with this at all. I, I, this is not, you know what? I think we've taken the wrong way. So I called to the vehicle ahead of us. No, no, we're going the right way. And you're like, no, look at the map. We're going the wrong way. And long and short, sure enough, we figured out we were and we tried to take some, you know, shortcuts across and the shortcuts are never shortcuts. We should have just turned around and gone back. And, and uh, that was the start of our trip. We drove uh, through the night, but in the middle of the night, my wife was driving and realized that uh, the rumbling, every time she stepped on the brakes, rumble strips, they were actually the brakes themselves going bad. And we were in the mountains of Pennsylvania when we realized this and wanted to slow down. And so she finally got to the point where she could pull off on the two-lane road that we were going through the hills there and uh, pulled off and she stopped and the other van went racing past us because they didn't know what was going on. And, uh, and so we're trying to radio them on the walkie-talkie and I climbed in and grabbed uh, the gear shift because I was going to drive at that point and the gear shift came out of the column. And uh, so we drove to Gettysburg, which is where we were headed. It was one of our midpoint stops. We were going to go to Gettysburg and drive around Gettysburg. And we got to Gettysburg, and we weren't looking for the battlefield. We were actually looking for an auto dealership to look at the brakes that we had. But we arrived there uh, in the worst flooding that uh, they had had in 50 years at Gettysburg. Museum places were flooded and, and things like that, so uh, you really couldn't go see the battlefield because it was underwater, and they were uh, in disaster mode in that region, and 
they looked at our brakes and said, you'll be fine, you know, you're headed to Richmond, you should be able to get there, have somebody look over the, the brakes and whatever, and you should be fine uh, when you get down there. We tried to leave Gettysburg, and of course the roads we needed to go out on were blocked because they were flooded out, and so we managed to get down the road, and we're finally in Virginia, and we're on the last stretch there of I-95, and we've got about uh, two hours to, to reach Richmond, and it's it's only two o'clock in the afternoon. We have to be at the church by five, five thirty to be ready for a service at seven. And it was at that point that I was following the van in front of us that had a trailer attached to it. And there was a Cadillac that was driving next to them that suddenly just kind of swerved over and hit the, the trailer and then pulled back into the road again. And I called ahead and I said, uh, hey, Tom, you, you just got hit. And he goes, no, I didn't. I said, somebody just hit your trailer. He goes, no, it was a gust of wind. I said, no, somebody just hit your trailer. And so I pulled up next to the guy in the Cadillac. He was still driving along. And I, I don't know if he fell asleep at the wheel or what had happened, but he was just driving along. And I drove up next to the trailer and it seemed to be okay. But it wasn't 15 minutes later that we're following behind this and that the van in front of us suddenly just exploded in a cloud of white mist. And it was shooting this all over I-95, three-lane highway, uh, major artery on the East Coast. And, and here we're spraying smoke all over the place like a blinding fog cloud. And we both pulled off to the side of the road and went and looked in the, well, the engine as if we knew what was going on there. My brother and I have no idea how to fix vehicles, but we're just looking there intently at the vehicle. Cars whizzing by, and of course you have 15, uh, well, 13 teenage boys who have been trapped in a vehicle for all this time, and they started chasing each other around the vehicles and, you know, not going out into the lanes of traffic, but, you know, they're chasing each other around because it's hot and they've got water pistols and whatever else, and we finally had somebody come along and go, well, we can help you out, and we can tow you to the next exit, and so we figured out how to get the vehicle towed to the next exit, and they looked at the vehicle and they said, oh, it's just simply this. We can get it fixed in about an hour. And my brother-in-law, who was the one I was working with, goes, we can make it to the church service. It's, it's, we're looking at the, the clock. It's 6.15. We're supposed to be there at 7. And it's, a, it's at least a 30 to 45-minute drive. But he's like, we can make it. And so we went driving into uh, this church. We got there about 10 minutes before. We're pulling out all our stuff with kids who have been in a vehicle for 24 hours. Imagine girls, you know, just panicked at this. And guys were supposed to be dressed in suits and whatever. But we, you know, and so we just tear into the auditorium. We're about 15 minutes late for the service, but we get up and sing. They haven't tuned the, the trumpets to the piano or anything. And we sing the first number and the trumpets are completely out of tune and, you know, whatever. And that was kind of you know, how our 24-hour time period of ministering to churches started. The encouraging thing was, is when we got done singing, even with out-of-tune trumpets and things like that, the pastor got done and said, wow, that was fantastic. Could you do that for us again? Uh, and had us sing again. But uh, we had laid good plans. We had planned to minister. We were planning to help people out. We were planning on uh, doing... Uh, helpful things for churches. Uh, but you know what? Plans don't always work out the way that you plan them. And what you have in Romans chapter 15 is Paul telling you about his plans. And some of them haven't worked out the way he expected. 
See, what we have in Romans 15, we said Romans 15 and 16 is this lengthy conclusion where it's not necessarily dealing with doctrinal statements and teaching. It's just kind of giving practical matters and things like that, that the Apostle Paul is just giving us an insight to what's going on in his life. We might put it this way, Christian life and Christian doctrine being lived out in everyday activities and events. And the Apostle Paul is laying out uh, for people that he is planning to do certain things. That he's looking to do certain things at the Roman church and and across the the sea, he's planning on doing certain things and and doing certain things for a, a congregation that's in great need. And he's got all of these plans. Sometimes they don't work, sometimes they do. But this is not a section that's going to be simply saying this, that planning is bad. No, planning is a good thing because if you're trying to redeem the time, you will do some planning ahead to be able to use the time that you have to the fullest. Make our time more useful. For Paul, his plans were his ways of imagining or dreaming about here's what the Lord could do. And so he would plan for certain things. You know, when you look at the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul uh, was followed by somebody about 2,000 years later by the name of David Livingston. David Livingston was uh, the individual that was known for opening up the heart of Africa to getting into the interior, uh, and it was for the purpose of giving the gospel to people that had not heard the gospel, not just merely exploring, though that was a side effect of it, but when he initially applied to the London Missionary Society uh, and they asked him what his plans were and where he planned to go, he just simply said this, where, this, anywhere as long as it is forward. I plan on going anywhere as long as it's accomplishing something or looking to accomplish something for God. So what this section of the book is, is not uh, the normal material that Paul gives in his teaching, but gives us some practical insight into how Paul planned for ministry. And granted, uh, we may not have as extreme plans, uh, large plans that take us across oceans, but we should see uh, reflected in the Apostle Paul in our own life that there is some plans to minister to others. And so for us today, as we look at this passage in Romans chapter 15, we ought to have this as a theme in our mind. Planning to minister to others should be part of our plans. Planning to minister to others should be part of our plans. So what you find in, in verses 20 through 24 is that Paul had plans for the future. He had uh, a plan to plant the gospel. We looked at this last week. Romans uh, chapter 15 and verse 20, he said, Yea, I strive to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build upon another man's foundation. But as it is written, to whom he hath not spoken of, they shall see, and they that have not heard shall understand. What he says is this, is I am not looking to plant ch- or to, to build churches where there's already been churches planted. I'm looking as part of my ministry to go to places where they've never even heard the name of Jesus. That's my goal. That's my desire. It's not that he didn't stop in other churches and preach the gospel and do this, but his grand calling in life was to be a missionary to the Gentiles, the apostle to the Gentiles, and he's thinking of the nations that are unreached, and he's just simply saying this, my overall plan is to reach people who have not heard in regions that have never heard the name of Jesus Christ. 
That was part of the big plan that he had. But then you see, as Paul is planning for all of this, he's going to travel certain locations to go to certain locations to plant churches in places that have never heard Christ, that he's going to stop and, and see different congregations. And you see in verses 22 to 23 that Paul has plans to visit this church in Rome. Paul is in Greece at this time, is the location that he's in, or Macedonia, uh, depending on where you thought he was, think he's at when he writes this letter. But he makes statements, listen, to you as a congregation, I want to come and visit you. The unusual thing about this book is that this book, this letter that Paul wrote to the Romans, he's writing to a church that he's never been to. He's contacted and been with people that have known this church, You think of two individuals, Aquila and Priscilla, had been part of the church at Rome until they were kicked out, uh, being Jews by the Roman Empire, or the the Roman Caesar for a time. Uh, The Jews were kicked out, and so in this process, Aquila and Priscilla go someplace else. Paul meets up with them as tent makers and works with them, so he's got some familiarity of some of the people in the congregation, and he would have run into others that had been a part of it, but Paul had never physically been to Rome. And so he said, my desire is to be in Rome. In fact, uh, you might remember this from the first part of Romans, way back in Romans chapter 1, in the introduction, the Apostle Paul made this statement. He said this, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, who I am serving my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making requests, and this is one of his prayer requests, making requests, that if by any means now at length I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come unto you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to the end that you may be established. That is, that I may be comforted together with you by the mutual faith both of you and me. And I would now, now I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, that oft times I purposed to come to you, but was let, or we might say, as he says in this passage in Romans 15, that he was hindered hitherto that I might have some fruit among you, even amongst other Gentiles. Then he goes on to talk about the fact that he's a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians. The Apostle Paul said, I, I really want to meet you. I've heard of your faith. I've heard of what you're go- what's going on there in that community. And I want to come and be encouraged in your faith as I encourage you with my faith and, and what I'm doing in my Christian life. And I can't wait to see even some gospel fruit in the sense that people come to know Christ as, as a result of my ministry that's there. But I've been, and it said here in Romans 1, let here hitherto, or in this passage, verse 22, for which cause also I have been much hindered from coming to you. See, it had plans to go to Rome, but there were things that this word hindered means this, is that it's like a person who's running a race and somebody cuts in front of them and makes them change their path. That something kind of forcibly comes in and you can't avoid it if you want to continue to go forward. So you kind of have to to swerve. One has made this statement about the life of the Apostle Paul. You think about what may have hindered him from being able to get to Rome. He had ministered in Asia Minor. He had ministered in Greece, Macedonia, Achaia, all these regions uh, in the eastern part of the Mediterranean And one has made this uh, comment about the life of the Apostle Paul during this time. He said this, when we reconstruct the events of the the two or three years immediately preceding the, the writing of the book of Romans, 
The hindrances to Paul's advancing further along the ark from Jerusalem to Illyricum are obvious. In looking at Paul's career, I count several imprisonments, congregational problems in Colossae, Laodicea, Philippi, and Corinth, postponed plans to deliver the Jerusalem offering because of congregational conflicts and threats from Jewish zealots, extensive travel such as the abortive trip to Corinth, which Paul was intending to, to go to Corinth and didn't happen, and the anxious trip to Troas in search of Titus bearing news about the alienated congregation at Corinth. When you think about all the things that Paul is dealing with, he's dealing with problems of the church at Corinth, Colossae, the church at Philippi, and he's got all sorts of things like this that are going on. You'd say, okay, Paul's got a full schedule. And sometimes as he would plan to do certain things, and he might have said, well, this is the time to get to Rome, something else would come up that demanded immediate attention. And so he would be hindered at times. It's not that Paul was not wanting to see them. He made very clear, verse 23, now having no more place in these parts and having a great desire these many years to come unto you. Uh, he was looking for an opportunity and there was a passion that he wanted to come and meet them. And it seems like as he looks at his calendar, his planning schedule, he goes, I think I can do this now. I can fit it into my calendar. And he fits them in, but he's got some other things he needs to do. We're going to hear about him needing to go presently to Jerusalem. But he's saying to them, I also, when I come to see you, I've got someplace else I'm planning on going. You know, I plan in the future to come to you at Rome, but my goal is not to stay with you at Rome because my whole mission in life is to plant the gospel where it hasn't been heard. And so you see, he had future plans to get to Spain. You see this in verse number 24. Uh, he says this, Whensoever I take my journey into Spain, I will come to you. For I trust to see you in my journey and to be brought on the way thitherward by you if first I be somewhat filled with your company. Paul is looking to go to Spain. You think about this in our Bible and uh, the Old Testament, as you read the word Tarshish, uh, remember that Jonah was supposed to go to Assyria across land to the east. And what he did is he got in the boat in the Mediterranean and was going to head as far west as he could to Tarshish. That's Spain. That Spain just seems to be, uh, when you look at the globe and the way that they describe things, part of the end of the earth for these people. He really didn't go much further than Spain because, you know, the Atlantic is beyond that. And, well, supposedly people didn't know there was anything beyond that for years and years and years. But for them, Spain was the end of the map. And Paul is looking to go there. And when he, well, is looking to go, he is looking to stop at Rome. And you say, for what purpose? Well, he wants to be encouraged by their faith. He wants to encourage them and, and see what's going on in their ministry. But there is a side note here because he's doing what missionaries always do. Look at verse number 24 again. He says this, For I trust to see you in my journey and to be brought on my way thitherward by you. To be brought on my way. That's a Greek term that is used quite often about, well, missionaries stopping in churches to get support to go where they're supposed to be going. 
financial support, perhaps uh, supplies, and even personnel, individuals that you might pick up in a church that know the destination that you're going to and bring them along with you. For the Apostle Paul, as he was looking at Spain, uh, Spain was a a region, as far as they they could tell, was a region that did not, uh, as far as historical records and what we have, didn't have many Jewish congregations. Wow, Paul usually started his ministry in different locations. It was to go to the Jewish synagogue first, preach there, and then get thrown out, and then start preaching to the nation surrounding him. But at least he had a starting point to work with some Jews, see them saved, and then start building upon a body of believers there to reach. It seems that, as far as we can tell, there weren't a whole lot of people that were Jews in Spain. Paul was going to a region that was, well, not how he would normally do things. And many suggest the fact that he was stopping in Rome because he would find individuals there that would have had some contact with those regions of Spain he'd never been to. Perhaps knows, uh, so knew some of the local dialects that would help him communicate. And so it may be that the Apostle Paul's going to the church at Rome to find people that could assist him in the reaching of people in Spain, ones that were familiar with the region there and be able to help him. But he was also looking for the fact that the church might help him. Now you say, why Spain? Why was Paul looking to go to Spain? Well, he said to this point, he's gone from Jerusalem all the way to Illyricum. And you go, where's that, where's that at? Uh, it's Albania and modern day, well, not modern day anymore, but uh, what we would call the region of Yugoslavia what we used to know that as, it's now broken up into multiple states, that region north of Greece, he'd gotten to that point, and he's saying, listen, I'm going to go to Rome, but there's already a church established at Rome, but I'm going to go, and we might say this, he's going to the uttermost parts of the earth. It's kind of what the commission said, and, and he might be moving on this fact that the Lord, when he said, he was talking about when he would come back, he was talking about end time events in the gospel of Matthew. He made this statement, and this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. Some have suggested that Paul may very well have been going, I've got to get to the uttermost parts of the earth. And my responsibility as the minister to the nations is to go and reach those nations. Some have suggested that maybe the Apostle Paul was even looking back at the Old Testament. Where it's stated in Isaiah chapter 66, one of the few times in the Old Testament does mention Spain. It mentions it as Tarshish. And talking about yet the future things that God will do, it says this, and I will set a sign among them and I will send those that escape of them unto the nations. And he's talking about these Jews that escape uh, from exile. I'll send them to the nations, to Tarshish, to Pool, to Lud, uh, that draw the bow, to Tubal, to Javan, to the isles afar off, that have not heard of my fame, neither have seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory unto the Gentiles, unto the nations. It could very well have been that Paul is going, I've got to reach the uttermost parts of the earth and some of the uttermost parts of the earth, even listed, is Tarshish, is Spain. 
And so for Paul to get his mission done, he makes this plan that I need to get to Spain and I'll stop by Rome and visit with you and get there uh, and perhaps get some help on the way. So Paul had plans for the future. I mean, we're talking plans here that are one, two, three, four years out. But he's planning for the future. What can he do to minister to other people? How can he reach people with the gospel and encourage other believers? He had plans for that. But he also had plans for the present time, right now. Not future dreaming and daydreaming, but what was going to happen right now. And you say, well, what's going to happen right now? Paul begins to mention this. In verse 25, he says, But now I go into Jerusalem to minister unto the saints. For it hath pleased them of Macedonia and Achaia to make certain contribution for the poor saints which are at Jerusalem. If you read the letters of Paul, this is a constant theme of what he's doing. He's looking to collect funds for the church at Jerusalem. You go, well, why the church at Jerusalem? Well, the church of Jerusalem at this time was the center of persecution. The Romans weren't persecuting Christians at this point. Okay, the Roman government itself was not oppressing Christianity and feeding them to lions and using them for entertainment and sport uh, to their death. No, that's not going on at this time. But the one region of the world to be a Christian uh, and be, well, persecuted was the city of Jerusalem. We know this. Paul had been part of that persecution. He had been killing Christians, hauling them off to prison. He had been a part of that persecution. But it was not only that that was a problem. Along with the persecution of Christians, the Jews in general in that area were suffering because of a famine. And we're actually told about this in the Bible. Uh, Acts chapter 11, verse 27 tells us this, that in those days came prophets from Jerusalem to, unto Antioch, and there stood up one of them named Agabus, and signified by the Spirit that there should be a great dearth throughout the, the world, which came to pass in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, every man according to his ability, determined to send relief unto the brethren which dwelt in Judea, which also they did, and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. I mean, as soon as this famine was about to happen, when Paul and, or excuse me, yeah, Paul and Barnabas were still in Antioch. They hadn't gone on any missionary journeys yet. They're already taking money from churches and delivering it to those in need in Jerusalem. I mean, this sounds very much like what you've got going on in the Ukraine. Some of you may have even contributed to this, where you're seeing things going on over there and you're just going, they're going through difficult times. Let's send funds to help these people who are in dire need. You know, there's a famine of food and there's a famine of supplies uh, and this goes on. Well, Paul had been doing this, but it had been a regular part of his ministry to get churches to help those being persecuted and in famine there in Jerusalem. And so as he would go from church to church, he would gather funds and call for help to help the church, the founding church, the first church that was going through such difficulty to have, well, churches help with this. And he'd been doing this for many years. But it seems like he's gotten to the point where he's gotten a large collection together. And it's interesting how Paul names this gift. He, he calls it different things as he describes this monetary gift that he's bringing to Jerusalem. He calls it in verse 25, a ministry. 
You know, you're going to minister. It's the word diakonos. We get the word deacon from that. Uh, it's just the idea that you have the opportunity to serve somebody. You know, sometimes just giving them money and goods can be a way to serve somebody. You may not be able to physically get there yourself, but you can help them out. And he, he calls this a service. Or he calls this gift in verse number 27. It says, It has pleased them verily, and they debtors they are. For if the Gentiles have been made partakers of their spiritual things. That word partakers is the word we use elsewhere in our scripture for fellowship. You know, there's an opportunity to fellowship with individuals and encourage them. And you're being united together. You're being knit together when you do this for fellow believers, when you're helping them out. And it may only be through financial or physical supplies or that, that you're fellowshipping with them. There's a unity, you know, these people are serving Christ and there's this need that they have. And so there's the desire to encourage them and reflect what God has given to you to help them. And it may be that you're going to find yourself in the same circumstances in the future and they're able to reflect that back. There's a fellowship, a unity. There's a commonality that goes on there. Or some would put it a solidarity uh, that happens when you have this. But Paul also calls this, as it says this, it's their duty also to minister unto them. Uh, the word there is the word we looked at, uh, I think, two weeks ago. It's the word we get liturgy from. This is like a public act of service, a public act of worship. You know, what do you mean that a giving of money can be an act of worship? Well, it's responding to things that you know and that you're willing to give up things that belong to you because you understand certain things about your possessions. I mean, if you understand that God owns everything and that you're merely stewards of what you own and that at times God calls us to help others in need, and you're willing to part with this, it's worship. You're responding to what you understand about the things that you own and the things you possess and the things of God, and you respond to this. That's what worship is. Worship is not just merely coming to a church service on a Sunday, and that's worship, and the rest of the week there's no worship going on. No, my whole life is understanding certain things about God and myself and responding in a way that reflects the character and the nature of God, what he's like. And so the Apostle Paul says, yeah, this is a way for you to have fellowship with these individuals. It's a way to serve them. It's a way to just reflect a knowledge of God in a very public way to others that there is a God and we have a responsibility to others and people can see God through your act of service, ministry. I mean, Paul names this gift this way, and he names the groups that are actually involved in this. He talks about those that are of Macedonia, and you say, well, who's those, who are those churches? The church at Philippi, the church at Thessalonica, those churches there that Paul had ministered to, that he had gotten funds from them. And actually, he said about the Macedonians, he actually made comment in his letter in 2 Corinthians about their attitude in giving this money. 
He described it this way in chapter 8. He said, Moreover, brethren, we do to do you to the wit of the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, how that in great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep trial of affliction, or excuse me, their deep poverty abounded unto the riches of their liberality. And think that liberality just means their free giving. Okay? For to their power I bear record, yea, beyond their power were willing of themselves, praying us with much entreaty that we would receive the gift and take upon us the fellowship of the ministering of the saints. This they did, not as we hoped, but first gave their own selves to the Lord and unto us by the will of God. What it says is this, here's these churches in Macedonia, hear about this problem that's going on in Jerusalem, and even though they're poor themselves... They first go, what can we do to serve the Lord and help out the body of Christ? But here are our finances, and they aren't even just simply saying to the Apostle Paul, okay, here it is. No, they're going, please, take this. They're entreating him. I mean, these are strong terms where they're saying, take this and get this to the church of Jerusalem. They need it more than we do. Let them have it. Give them encouragement by taking this to them. And when you see this, the Macedonians are an example of what Paul then says to the church at Achaia, Achaia, which you go, what are the churches at Achaia? Corinth was one of them. That God loveth a, what? Cheerful giver. It wasn't begrudging that this happened. There was a joy in being able to serve the Lord and be a joy in serving others. And the Apostle Paul has to write the church at Corinth and basically say to him, stop being so stingy. The church at Corinth was a, in many ways, a very wealthy church because it was the center of trade. Corinth was a, on an isthmus that was between uh, the, Met, or excuse me, the Aegean Sea and the Adriatic Sea. And there was a lot of trade that trafficked through that town. And there would have been all sorts of money that was there. Not saying everybody in that church was wealthy. But you have to understand that they had wealth. And the Apostle Paul goes, you could be like those who were in need, that they're giving to others who are in need, and they were joyful in serving, to have that opportunity. You and the church at Corinth need to do that. You said, did the church at Corinth figure this out? Did they do this? Well, that's what the Apostle Paul says here. You know, we've got a gift from the church of Macedonia and a, church, or a gift from the churches of Achaia that I'm going to deliver to Jerusalem. And you say, well, what's the importance of this? Why was Paul taking money from these churches and giving it to Jerusalem and then actually talking about it in this passage? What role does it play in the whole message of the book of Romans? It's this. Do you remember what Romans 9 through 11 was about? It was a whole discussion on whether or not God could save Jews and that seemingly God had rejected the Jews, but now he's ministering to the Gentiles. But sooner or later, what God's going to do in his plan is bring Jews and Gentiles together uh, and have them in all, or all together praise him that at the end of time, God's going to take the nation of Israel and he's going to have them praise God that God's plans are going to work out, that you have groups of people, Gentiles and Jews, that don't get together on anything, but in Christ they will, they will praise God. And then in Romans chapter 14, this discussion of the strong and the weak that we went through, the strong we were describing probably as Gentiles who had no real conscience about certain issues, 
They were free in Christ. They didn't have background in their past that caused them to be restrictive of certain things in their conscience. And the weak, who are probably these Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ, who are still thinking as a Jew would about certain foods and certain feast days that they shouldn't do this. And what the Apostle Paul has to do is say, hey, stop despising one another. Stop judging one another. Get together and serve Christ, you Jews and Gentiles. And what do you have as an illustration of this? You have these churches that are mainly Gentile. They're from the nations. They really don't have a whole lot of Jews in them, if any. And they're taking their money and sending it to this Jewish church, mainly filled with Jews. And you see this unity in Christ. It's displayed that this giving and the gift illustrates what Paul has been trying to teach this congregation in Rome that's filled with Jews and Gentiles. You ought to get along. Look at this grand scale of multiple churches doing ministry to people that aren't like them, but they're in Christ and they're ministering to them. And you have this ultimately played out here. As one writer said, For Gentiles to give money for Jewish Christians was a sign that Gentiles regarded them as members of the same family. For Jewish Christians to accept it would be a sign that they in turn accepted the Gentiles as part of their family. And it was a gift that went even beyond that. You have this little statement at the end where it says this, That it was their duty, you put the word obligation, it was their obligation to minister to them in carnal things, carnal things, money, you know, things like that, things of this life. That it was the obligation of Gentile churches to send stuff back to the Jewish congregation in Jerusalem. You go, why? Because Jerusalem was the founding church. If it wasn't for the Jews receiving the message of Jesus Christ and salvation starting with them, the Gentiles would have had no hope of salvation. But because of this church, here you have this, this church, uh, these churches that are filled with people from the nations, that this work goes on. And so when Paul's making plans, he says, presently, I'm, I'm going to do this. I'm going to deliver this gift. It's really an illustration of Christians getting along with one another that don't normally get along with one another and them serving and fellowshipping and have unity with one another. And I'm going to make sure that this happens because at the end in verse 29, he says, or verse 28, he says this, when therefore I have performed this and have sealed to them this fruit, I will come to you, excuse me, I will, I will come to you into Spain. He's simply saying this, when I've sealed up, and this term was used in a context to describe what a person would do in making a deal in the marketplace. You'd have the selling of grains and this type of thing, and the grain would be poured into bags. And then what you would have was that those bags would be sealed up and set aside and given to this person. And what he's saying is, I want to see this out to the end. I want to make sure that we might say signed, sealed, and delivered in our culture. Paul's saying, I'm going to make sure that all of this money that's been collected gets to them, and I want to be able to seal this up and say it's over with, it's gotten to them, now we can do something else. He was making sure in his plans that he saw things to completion. 
There's a lot of people in this world that have great plans and they have great ideas, never work it out to completion. Paul goes, I want to make sure that this gets taken care of and I'm going to follow up to make sure it completely gets done. He wants to make sure the ministry happens. And so for the Apostle Paul, he's working right up into the finish. And so he has plans for the future. He wants to go to Spain. He wants to go to Rome. And he wants to be able to do those things. Presently, he's looking to go to the city of Jerusalem. But I want to say thirdly, what was he doing in all of this? He was planning for the future. He's planning for the present. But what was he planning to do? He was planning to be a blessing. He himself was planning to be a blessing to other people, to minister to one another. See, in verse 29, he says this, I am sure that when I come unto you, that I shall come in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ, that I'm going to come to you and be a blessing to you. That's my goal, an encouragement. A blessing is just simply this, deserving and giving somebody uh, above what they have already. And he goes, I understand this. I'm looking to come and be a blessing to you in the gospel of Jesus Christ. For those of you that are in the congregation there at Rome, I'm looking to encourage you in Christ, what he's doing, what he's done for me. I'm looking to do that. And if you don't know Christ, I'm looking to give you the blessing of understanding who this Jesus is. And declare him to you and lift him up because he's the greatest blessing you can have for eternity to know Jesus. And for the Apostle Paul, he lived out his life and he's just simply saying this, I want to be a blessing. And it's not just merely giving people stuff that encourages you and make you, makes you feel warm and fuzzy. He's going, I want to be a blessing to you that you grow in your relationship with God that you know his son and you know him and that as a result of the time that is spent with me and with others that know Christ, that you do receive a blessing. And so for us, in, in just kind of closing out a passage like this, you're going, well, I'm never going to go to Spain. I'm never going to Rome. I'm not going to Jerusalem. So what does a message like this even mean to me? Well, it's just simply this. You need to plan to minister to others. I mean, you need to plan to encourage other believers. There may be people in the congregation, there may be people that you know that are fellow believers that materially in this world, they're suffering. They may have a difficult time making ends meet and it is part of the abundance that you have right now to be able to minister to them, get them the food that they need or help take care of some of the financial needs that they have and that you just go and you encourage them. Because think about this, it may be that there's going to be times in your future that that, that is the very thing you're hoping and trusting may be reflected back to you. Not that you're doing it because you want things to be done for you, but the fact is, is that you ought to plan it's part of your life to encourage other believers. You ought to plan to fellowship with other believers. You know, you don't have to get together to give things to each other. You don't have to go merely just to see people and go, okay, here's things that I'm giving to you to meet your needs. No, it's okay just to go and fellowship with other believers. 
I mean, church is hopefully a part of that, that you come to church and it's not just merely that you're coming here to give your offering and, and that type of thing and be a part of it. No, that, that you're coming here to actually just visit. Encourage other people. Talk of what Christ has done in your life or what he's doing and how he's shown uh, himself good and, and that you can ask someone else, listen, you know, just pray for me. But not just only in this church congregation, at the times where we meet together officially, should we be attempting to encourage one another? We ought to be getting together at other times where we're encouraging one another. And when you travel, I just put this as an extra thing here, when you travel, you ought to go and visit other congregations. You go, why? Because when you get in those congregations, they will do things and there's things that God is doing through them that you are not experiencing at that point and you see God working in that way. It's an encouragement to you and you have the opportunity to go in the midst of a congregation and they're going, well, you know, what are you here? What are you doing? Let's find out a little about, about you and there is encouragement that you can give to them. You may walk into a church that is going through difficult times because of things you don't know about and your church is going well and you walk in there and they're just discouraged and you're going, listen, you know what? It can turn around. Things can go well. Let's just talk about what happened in our ministry or what happened uh, to us personally and be able to encourage. And so when you go on vacation, there ought to be a plan to attend churches. Encourage them. You know, we live in a generation now that you can watch online. That's a wonderful ministry to have. But sometimes if we just merely, as we go and travel, only watch our services, it causes us to miss out on perhaps some fellowship we could have with other believers. And so for us, we ought to plan to encourage other believers to visit and fellowship with other believers. But we also, and ultimately ought to be thinking this, like Paul was going to Spain, is that we ought to plan in our lives of how we are going to give the gospel to family members, to co-workers, to those that are neighbors in our community, that this ought to be just the thinking in our mind, how are we going to reach people like this? Now, sometimes opportunities to give the gospel happen by accident, okay? Rarely. But it happens where someone goes, okay, you're a Christian, let me ask you certain questions. But, you know, you're going to have to plan to give the gospel to share Christ, to lift him up with certain people. And so you have to figure out, when can we do this? And this is regularly part of Paul's plans, not just to be around Christians all the time, but to, well, find unsaved people, share with them Jesus, lift him up, and, well, plant at least the message of Jesus Christ, and at times be able to harvest, to see individuals know him. And so for us, what Paul serves as is not an example of, okay, we have to go across the oceans to be, able to, to be able to serve God. No, we can just go across the street or just across the neighborhood or a community, and we can do ministry. But like Paul, it doesn't happen accidentally. There was a plan. There was planning. There was dreaming. There was vision. And we have to do that in order for us to be able to do, like Paul, 
and have impact like Paul. And so I trust as, as believers in Christ that you reflect what Paul is uh, showing here on a grand scale that in your own Jerusalem you're reflecting this kind of activity. Lord, we thank you. May we plan. Our plans may get changed. Our plans may get moved, as Paul acknowledges, but uh, our failure at times is just to, at times, plan on being a blessing, an encouragement to fellowship, to lift up Christ. So help us to be better at this, that planning to minister would be a part of our plans. Help us to be better at that. Help us to magnify wherever you send us, anywhere you put us, that we plan to minister. And this we pray in the name of the Son who came to this world to minister to us, minister grace to us. May we reflect his life, and in his name we pray. Amen.